Scripture lesson today is taken from Philippians chapter 4, verses 9 to 13. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, while living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Good morning, church. I want to say thank you to Tim for choosing the songs that you chose. And I want to say thank you to Colin uh, for his thoughts around the table. Um, And I want to begin this morning with a word of prayer. God, we just say thank you to you for being such a wonderful God to us, for blessing us in so many ways, and for giving us your words that clearly proclaim what your will is for our lives. And God, as the word is proclaimed today, I pray that you would be with all of us and be with all of our hearts and get control of our minds so we can hear this lesson anew. We pray all these things through Jesus' name. Amen. So there was a show that a family used to watch religiously back in the 80s and into the mid-90s. The show featured the extravagant lifestyles of the wealthy, wealthy entertainers, athletes, and business moguls. It rolled back the curtains and gave viewers an opportunity to see just how people with mounds of money lived. Each episode began with the British voice of Robin Leach. Robin would say, this is the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and the good life. Each show ended with the host's signature catchphrase. Champagne wishes and caviar dreams. For that family, the show became somewhat of a mood-altering drug. When the show was on, it represented 30 minutes of sheer bliss. But when the show ended, life went back to normal and reality settled in. Their reality resembled nothing like the lives of those that they had seen on their favorite TV show. Fast forward to today, and I'd say that the Internet has opened up an opportunity for people to sit for hours and watch not only the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but also the lifestyles of friends and family and even total strangers. It's opened up a way for us to know all the exciting things that are happening in the lives of those around us. What could be wrong with that? Sally's got a new car. And I still have my old jalopy. Mary's 
going on her fifth kid. And I still have my first. Look, it's Mike. And he's being rewarded. He's being awarded for the national award for grade 12 biology. He beat out all the kids in high school. My kid can't even get above a C. Oh, 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 look, they're on a cruise again. They're on a cruise and look at them eating and eating all the food they can while I'm stuck here in minus 30 Winnipeg weather. Johnny and Leslie just got married and I, well, I haven't even found a man yet. You can see then that it's not long before after examining the lives of others, we start being discontent with what we have. And in recent, in a recent study in psychology today, the writer Stephen C. Hayes made this comment in his article entitled The Unexpected Way That New Technology Makes Us Unhappy. He states, we humans love to compare ourselves to the people around us. Even when we are reasonably happy with what we have, we become dissatisfied once we compare ourselves to someone who has something better. Because of the prevalence of discontentment causing influences, Satan is having a field day with people. In a discontented state, we are like fish that have found ourselves outside of the fishbowl. And in that position, all we can do is operate from a place of desperation. We flip out and latch on to the things that appear to promise us life and hope. You know, in a discontented state, people are much more prone to grip on to things that appear to offer hope. And in a recent study in the Financial Post, it was determined that three-quarters of Canadians polled are in debt and owe $16,000 on average. That includes credit cards, loans, and personal lines of credit. The Financial Post recently stated that Canadians have piled up the biggest increase in debt-to-income in the G7 since 2000. In 2015, household debt reached 171% of disposable income. In other words, for every $100 of disposable income, households had debt obligations of $171. That is the highest level recorded since 1990. In other words, many people are swimming in debt. They may appear to be living life, but they're swimming in debt. They've got a brick attached to their legs. Why? Because many have tried to resolve their discontentment by buying more things with money they don't have. And when discontentment rears its ugly head, people are much more inclined to try things even if the outcome may result in them dying. Right now in Canada, we are seeing that there have been a number of deaths that have been linked to a powerful drug called carfentanil. And many of those taking the drugs, they're teenagers. In Catherine Ketchum's book, Teens Under the Influence, 
the truth about kids, alcohol and other drugs. She states that discontentment contributes to to drug use, premarital sex and even suicide. She says that discontentment contributes to drug use and in turn, drug use plays a role in discontentment. It's a vicious cycle starting from the root of discontentment. As I read the Bible, it's possible to see not just how God works, but also how Satan works. I was glad that Colin mentioned Satan in his Lord's Supper talk. It could be said that the first tactic that Satan used to trip up God's prized possession started from a place where discontentment was. You could say he's got a nose for the smell of discontentment. Think of the story back in Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. The Bible says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. As that story unfolds, we learn that Adam was discontent. God clearly told him, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you'll die. From that point on, Adam was thinking, hmm, there must be something about that tree. It's got to be something about that tree. Yeah, I know he gave me permission to eat of all the other trees, but you know, I'm not, I'm just not satisfied with his command that he gave me. I'm amazed with how long his discontentment feeling or discontented feeling stuck around. Even after God blessed him with an incredible wife, discontentment lingered. Just one chapter later in the Bible, guess who slips in through the cracks? It's Satan. There's a lot of ways he could have entered the scene, but he came as a snake. A limbless, flexible, perceptive, and crafty snake. Satan's technique was to play off of Adam and Eve's discontented position. He's got a vulnerability detector, you know. It's just like Satan to play off one's vulnerabilities. Once he found a place where they were vulnerable, he had them. Satan does mess with people. Despite what the message is about the jokes people make about Satan, you better believe today that he is real. Don't you know that Satan is a gamer? He studies each one of us like a scientist examines his specimens and then gets busy trying to trip us up. In 2 Corinthians, he's the one, according to Paul, who masquerades as a what? An angel of light. In Revelation, he's the one whom John says tries to lead the whole world astray. And in Luke, he's the one who steals the word of God from those who had just heard it. Jesus said he is a liar and a thief. It's no wonder when Peter describes him, he says he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And no wonder just before that... He says to Christians, be on the alert. 
And yesterday, Kim and I decided we would go shopping, forgetting that it was Black Black Friday or whatever. Yeah. And so we went to the mall. It was about four o'clock and we attempted to go into Canadian Tire. And as we went through the doors, I was amazed with the number of people in the Canadian Tire. While we walked through the mall, we were nearly, well, one first thing that happened was a lady was on a bicycle, a young kid going about 20 kilometers an hour in an aisle, just about ran into Kim. And then we turn the corner and we think, okay, we're free now. And here comes one of their employees with a ladder, six foot long ladder over his shoulder and just about takes off Kim's head. And then I said, okay, surely we're not going to be attacked again. So we're rocking around again. And then here comes this lady with a shopping cart and she nearly hits us. But this time Kim says, oh, watch out, honey. I said, wow, that was great. You know what? She was on the alert. When we're on the alert, we can see the dangers that come our way. So skip ahead a bit and you'll learn of another person that was discontent. He's one who came from the same tribe that Jesus came from. We learn of him right after the Israelites, led, uh, led by their leader Joshua, marched around the high walls of Jericho. When the walls came tumbling down, you remember that? The command given from Joshua was this. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking them on. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the articles of bronze and iron are scattered are, are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. There was a man named Achan. You remember Achan, Sizzlin Bacon, who looked at all that God did in helping them conquer Jericho and said through his actions, it's not enough. Discontentment got the best of him. And when he had an opportunity, he violated God's law and stole several of the items from those whom they had just conquered. And probably one of the stories we remember most readily was the one involving a man whom the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. As he stood on the roof of his palace at a time when other kings were at war, at a time when he had distinguished himself as a man of God, a writer of many of the Psalms, as a trusted shepherd and an incredible warrior and leader of his people. At the golden age, they say, of 50, he was one whom we would say had it all. He was one whom today would have surely made it on the cover of People magazine. Yet on that one spring day, atop the roof, when his mind should have went to a place where he reflected on how richly God had blessed him, instead, his mind brought him to a place of discontentment. And from that position, Satan slithered in and assisted in one of the most talked about scandalous stories in the Bible. We learn that it wasn't just his actions. Or we learn that it wasn't just his actions on top of his roof that revealed his discontentment. In Deuteronomy 17, 17, we learn that God, like all the other stories, gave a command first. God specifically said to the kings of Israel, 
neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. One wife wasn't enough for David. In 2 Corinthians, Samuel 5.13, or, or sorry, in 2 Samuel 5.13, we learn that David had many concubines and many wives. You see, he needed more and more and more and more and more. And even if it meant taking another man's wife and violating God's commandments, he was going to do it. Why? Discontentment. Not being satisfied. What about Solomon? A man of incredible wealth. In Ecclesiastes, he gives an honest confession about his life. We learn of a man who for much of his life was discontent. His discontentment led him to try many things. Indulging in pleasure. Drinking. Becoming a workaholic. Amassing a livestock and homes. Buying silver and gold and having multiple wives. Wouldn't he have learned from his dad? He had, the Bible says, over, he had a thousand wives. You would have thought that he would have learned something from the mistakes of his dad, but instead discontentment ruled. You know, even in the New Testament, we have stories that show the things, or that show the things people do when discontentment settles in. Judas, remember him? Matthew, the bigger barn building rich fool. The unmerciful servant mentioned in Jesus' parable. The woman at the well. And Simon the sorcerer to mention just a few. Discontentment was in the air and many breathed it in. And discontentment is in the air today and many still breathe it in. Just last year I learned of a man right here in Winnipeg who was the financial administrator for a church. After an audit it was discovered that over $400,000 had been stolen over a period of five years. Those handling the investigation said the theft began with small amounts. However, after five years, the sums had risen uh, substantially. You know that man was paid to do the job he did, and he was probably paid pretty good. But whatever he was making, it just wasn't enough to satisfy him. And I think I can say with some certainty why the seed of stealing from the church entered his mind. Can you guess what it might be? A while ago, I learned of a husband whose wife had caught her husband looking at pornography. Only after a year of being married that happened. And that woman was devastated. The husband felt guilty and he came and talked with me. And when I asked him why, his answer was boredom. Translation, he's not satisfied. I hope you see something this morning. When there's a hint of discontentment, Satan is often right nearby trying to persuade people to transgress his laws. And this was true in the stories mentioned above, and it was true too in Jesus' life. The more I learn about Jesus is the more I realize the incredible example he was for us. He was the epitome of contentment. He didn't even have a house. And as we read the Gospels, we rarely hear of him saying that he needed anything. In fact, at a time when you would expect him to be most discontented after spending 40 days and 40 nights in the desert, 
He relied on the strength God gave him and the words that he had stored up in him and in his mind to get him through. He showed us there that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. As human beings, there's a huge temptation to feel like we need more for our, our survival. And you know, Jesus said some interesting words about, about what he could do to fill the needs we have in our lives. Here's one of them. Matthew 5, 6. Matthew 5, 6. Listen to these words and listen to the promise he makes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. What's the promise? For they will be filled. He could have substituted that word filled with the word satisfied. So you want to break free from a life where discontentment rules? The solution is simple. Make a choice to hunger and thirst for righteousness. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, he told her she could get to a place where she could be free from discontentment. He told her, whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Why? Because Jesus is all you need. If you've got a pen this morning and you haven't written down anything, hear those words. Jesus is all you need. Did you notice in our reading this morning, the Apostle Paul shared with us a big secret. One big secret. In Philippians 4, 12 and 13, Paul said, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Highlight that in your Bible. Make a note of it. The words in any and every situation. As I walked through the mall, I was thinking, am I content right now? Look at all those mannequins wearing all those beautiful outfits. Oh, right? You know how it is. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he says these words, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. What can you do, Paul? Everything? His big secret is to trust God. My ability to be content in this world is directly related to how much I trust in the power of God to strengthen me. I can be content in life because I know that I'm connected to the one who has power to provide me everything that I need. I know the source. I believe in the source. I'm plugged into the source. So the same writer who gave us that big secret also wrote to a young man who he was mentoring. And here's what he said, another secret, but it's revealed in the word of God. He says this, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you combine your relationship with God with contentment, in the Greek, that word for great is megos. Megos. Sound familiar? Mega. Astronomical, enormous gain. It's interesting when you look up the meaning of the word content in a lexicon. 
It means a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. What a place to be in. Just think about what, what would have happened in the life of Adam and Eve, in Achan and David, and in countless other lives if this verse was something they remembered and lived by. And lately I think in times when I feel discontented or that I need other things to complete me, which happens a lot, I like to dwell on these next two verses and then we'll be done. First Timothy 6.17 Command those who are rich in this present world not to put their hope in wealth. It's uncertain. But to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then I like to remember 2 Peter 1.3 his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. So why this sermon at this time? Hmm. Well, we are a month away from a day when we will be bombarded with messages that try to capitalize off of our discontented states. Not only will the messages come from out there, they'll also come from the mouths of maybe our own children. In the midst of all that bombardment, will we remember that God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. So where do we go from here? I'd say we go, I'd say we go where Jesus went in times of difficulty. This is a difficult task. When Jesus faced difficulty, you would see him on his knees, praying to God, asking for help, just like a group of us men did yesterday at our men's breakfast. Lord, will you help us to reach a point in our lives where we come to the realization that you, as our shepherd, are all that we need. Lord, may we not be found wanting. So, through Scripture, we learn that God doesn't want us to go at life in our own strength. He wants us to realize that we need Him, and that He is all we need to be complete. Will you believe that this morning? Having Jesus in your life isn't going to happen without you taking steps towards Him. He says you need faith. If you want to be able to stand firm against Satan, He says you need to take up a shield. And He says that that shield is a shield of faith. And with that shield, you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows Satan throws your way. That's Scripture from Ephesians. We need to show we need to demonstrate that we believe in Jesus just like Donna did last Sunday and just like Andrew did by stepping into the waters of baptism and being cleansed from your sin. If you'd like to do that today, we would love to assist you. Won't you come forward as we stand and sing this next song? Let's stand as we sing. <clears throat>